A big buzzword these days? D-E-I. What is it? When you think about a party, diversity is who's invited. Inclusion. Inclusion is who's being asked to dance at the party. Equity. And equity is being asked what song you want played so that you feel like dancing. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. When you have more people in a work environment that come from different backgrounds and what have you, it becomes more comfortable for everyone. This is The Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs, anyone thinking about a startup or a small business looking to rebound from the pandemic. Hear about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from people who've been there and done that. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we kick off a new season with a look at racism in business and what DEI programs are doing to combat it. Here's Craig Stoller. Thank you, Don. How does a large organization embrace a trend and over time bring about meaningful change? We're on location virtually with Cecilia Uden, Interim Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Boston University Questrom School of Business and welcome to the Language of Business. Abu, hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you here. DEI is such a positive buzzword these days. What does it specifically mean to you? I first think about diversity, equity, and inclusion as being verbs and not nouns. It's important to recognize that there's an emphasis on intentional actions to address long-standing systems in order to become a diverse, equitable, and inclusive society. There's a framework in describing the nuances of DEI, and that's in thinking about going to a party, something that we are all looking forward to doing soon. And so when you think about a party, diversity is who's invited, so who's there. Inclusion is who's being asked to dance at the party, who's involved. And equity is being asked what song you want played so that you feel like dancing. So really recognizing that diversity is who's in the room, Inclusion is, are they participating? And equity is, do they have what they need to be successful in participating? But if it's neither a verb nor a noun, what is it? Is it a program? Is it a movement? I think it's all of that. And something that's common in DEI and social justice work is this concept of yes and. Not thinking about things as either or, but expanding the pie, right? A mindset of abundance. And so to me, diversity, equity, inclusion certainly are initiatives and they are statements and they are goals, but it's the actions behind them that will truly make the difference. What are the latest trends that you're seeing? For me, to think about trends in DEI can be a bit misleading because at its core, diversity, equity, and inclusion is rooted in lived experiences. And so we're really, in terms of business, looking to humanize ourselves in this space. Something that might be perceived as a trend, right, to some folks has been a long lived existence for other communities. But I think as we think about a general direction in DEI and business is the shift of this is no longer a nice to have, but a need to have in terms of how business thinks about their strategies, success metrics, their goals. I compare it often to the the movement we've seen in sustainability, where now if a company is not considering their climate impact, how they're serving all these different stakeholders, they're really not doing best business practices. And so recognizing that DEI is now a core value of good business that all consumers, customers, stakeholders, employees are demanding. That's interesting. But over time, how do you measure success in this area? As we know, in all aspects, it's important to have smart goals to know what we're aiming for. Often when organizations think about, you know, how can we become more diverse? It's important that we understand what diverse means for that particular organization. So the answer of how do you measure success depends on the organization itself. 
again, that example of we want to become a more diverse organization. What does diverse mean to you? Is it racially diverse, sexual orientation, class, socioeconomic diversity? In being able to identify how you look to diversify your organization, you can set these SMART goals that you can then work towards. And it's that self-work and naming specific goals that is really how we can measure success. Tell us, how does Questrom's DEI or those initiatives differ from those of the university? Questrom has officially been doing DEI work since we hired our first director for student diversity and inclusion in fall 2016. And at that time, we were really the only school college on the Charles River campus that was doing formal DEI work. Fast forward nearly five years later, BU has an overarching office of diversity and inclusion. All 17 schools and colleges have someone formally leading DEI at their schools. So there's a lot of collaboration and best practices happening. Question is still able to differentiate themselves in the BU ecosystem in that we have a Center for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And this is the only program office that is dedicated fully to the student experience as it relates to DEI. And so what that means for students at Questrom, both graduates and undergraduates, is that throughout their time at BU and at Questrom, they have intentional touch points as it relates to diversity education, identity conscious initiatives, and community building opportunities. So it's really woven into the fabric of their experience, less so having to seek it out. Is there a difference in programming for undergraduate versus graduate students? Yes, and all of our programs are available to graduate and undergraduate students, right? Allowing them to build that community and find connections across the experience. There is a nuance in terms of how, and generally speaking, undergraduates and graduates come to DEI spaces. And so this is common as you think about the academic experience for undergraduates and graduates. When you're first coming to college as an undergrad, for most students, this is the first time they're really engaging outside of their family, outside of the communities they've lived in. And so it's their first opportunity to think really, who am I and what do I want to bring to the world? And that relates as well to their social identities and this need to understand what it means to be, I'll speak for my, myself, you know, a multiracial immigrant female professional, right? And so in coming to college, it was the first time I had to define that by myself without my family to really back me up. And so you're faced with both this individual exploration, but in a sense, aspects of potential imposter syndrome as people say, well, you don't look what I think, you know, a multiracial Filipino looks like, or that's not how I understand that social identity. And so in the undergraduate experiences, they engage in DEI, it's much more of that foundational self-actualization. But as we think about what they're looking for in DEI spaces, it's much so the focus and how to apply those skills to their intended industry area or job focus. They know they've done their self-work, but how can they enact change in their spaces? And so really looking more for outcomes and best practices. So as students move outside of their homes or you move outside of academia, what are you seeing positively or negatively about racism in business? As folks are beginning to do the self-work to realize whether their organizations or institutions have racist practices, the first step is recognizing it. The next thing is learning what to do next. As we've seen, it's not enough to just have a statement denouncing racism. It's really in the actions that are going to make the difference for an organization. For me, this is really what comes to the core of uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi's how to be anti-racist work. I'll have another example, which is you can think about racism or really any oppressive structure as a moving walkway, something that we can all look forward to engaging next time we travel in an airport. So when you're on a moving walkway, 
you don't have to do anything and you're still moving towards something. And so that is how we can see racism in this country for the past 400 plus years has slowly been moving us towards a society. If we want to change direction on that moving walkway, we have to actively work against it. And so it's that component of the anti-racist approach and how to break down these structures that really is the next part of how to address racism in business. How might that answer change, unfortunately, in light of what happened at the three Asian spas? As I shared at the beginning, these are not new trends. Anti-Asian violence, Asian American Pacific Islander discrimination is long been in this country, you know, since the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Hmm. So I think how it expands our work is both helping to recognize that for many institutions, they've long not understood the, the unique needs of Asian and Pacific Islander students, right? They're, for some folks, they haven't always been considered people of color, for people who consider people of color only being Black and brown people. That's an excellent point. And so I think it expands the work in that there is now more focus for additional communities, but the needs of those communities are not new. Cecilia, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Cecilia Uden, Interim Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Boston University Questrom School of Business. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Coming up, a look at teaching the legal aspects of DEI when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. Questrom's really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Questrom School of Business and be able to work in any area of the industry. You're listening to The Language of Business. We've heard the HR angle on DEI, and now we'll look at teaching the legal angle. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. How does being a lawyer inform your perspective about diversity, equity, and inclusion? We're on location virtually with Dion Lomax, lecturer in markets, public policy, and law at Boston University Questrom School of Business, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. What does a lecturer teach about markets and public policy? Well, what I teach is essentially business law. I teach everything from torts to contracts to securities regulation, everything that a budding executive needs to know in order to not step into those pit holes once they start working. And how does that inform your perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, I think I, I can re maybe rephrase it this way. I think that knowing the legalities around certain conduct helps you understand where the guardrails are, because as we know, sometimes law is not just black and white, it's gray. And so if I know what's permissible and impermissible, as different DE&I efforts or initiatives are being rolled out or implemented, I can do two things. One, I can be more impactful and effective in terms of knowing what might work and what might not work. But also, and probably more importantly, in particular for the legal departments at various companies, it helps you know where the landmines are so that as you create 
and think you're resolving one issue, you're not creating a legal issue somewhere else. And that's really what I want to talk about is, is it a landmine or a difference of perspective? Sometimes it could be a landmine. You might be resolving an issue for one group, but the way that it's implemented and the way that it gets rolled out, for some reason, maybe it creates an actual legal claim for retaliation or a legal claim for hostile work environment for a different group. Sometimes it could actually be a landmine. You also have done a lot of work with affiliated monitors in terms of looking at regulatory issues. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so Affiliated Monitors, it's a Boston-based independent monitoring firm. It essentially engages in independent oversight of compliance conditions in a number of contexts. Sometimes those compliant conditions are imposed by federal, state, and local authorities who have accused a target company of violating the law in one way or another. So what Affiliated will do is serve as an independent monitor in connection with those what we sometimes call consent decrees or settlement agreements, because these settlement agreements often, in lieu of going to trial, will require a party to adhere to certain conditions. Thou shalt not do this, that, and the other. So AMI will come in and monitor the compliance during the term of that particular settlement agreement or consent decree. The other thing that AMI does, however, is we offer proactive assessments to companies. Some companies haven't gotten in trouble yet, and they want to make sure that the compliance program that they put together is fits their culture, that it's working effectively and efficiently. And so as managing director of antitrust and trade regulation for AMI, I am responsible for client oversight in areas that involve competition, antitrust, and trade regulation with respect to all the things that AMI does. And how much does that proactivity also include diversity, equity, and inclusion? You know what? I've only been with AMI for a year, so I have not yet had to deal with DNI issues. But I can foresee that, especially with some of the changes that we're seeing happening out in industry, I can absolutely foresee that that will be an area that we encroach upon in very short order. Given that you work in both the private sector and in academia, what DEI trends are you seeing in both worlds? Outside of academia, I'm seeing companies take proactive steps to increase the level of representation of underrepresented groups at various levels. For example, in the last probably literally month alone, I've seen at least a half dozen African-American women installed on various boards of directors or installed as the chief legal officer of major Fortune 500 companies. So that's what I'm seeing outside of academia. What I'm seeing inside academia, and I can obviously speak to my experience at Questrom, is that I see academia also taking a proactive role. For example, Questrom developed within the last year, they developed a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that includes students, faculty, as well as staff, and those who are part of the administration. That committee includes various subcommittees, and those subcommittees are studying everything from lack of diverse protagonists in case studies. They're looking at structuring certain initiatives to make sure that when students work in project or in teams that there aren't certain microaggressions happening within those teams that are marginalizing those who are culturally or ethnically different. And they also are, and I think this has a personal, very personal to me, they have supported the development of a new course. I developed, along with Professor Fatima Bazandero, 
a new course titled Business Law and Discrimination. It's a pilot course that we just started offering this semester, and it's being offered at the MBA as well as the undergraduate level. So if you put it all together, what short-term recommendations would you have for companies to do this effectively? I guess three things. One, I think you need to make sure that you create a safe or comfortable environment for employees to have conversations about race. From whose perspective? Safe from the company's perspective or safe from the employee's perspective? Because I would argue it could not necessarily be evenly split. No, that's true. Safe from the employee's perspective because having conversations around race, they're difficult. They're difficult for those who are underrepresented, right? Because sometimes those who are underrepresented feel like if they speak up, they might be labeled as too sensitive. Those who are in the majority also don't want to have those conversations because they feel like if I say the wrong thing, even in this context, I'm going to be labeled a racist. There's ways around that, though. You can have, and this would be my second, I guess, tip, is not just trainings, because trainings can backfire because people may feel like if they're forced to do it, that sometimes it it's not the best mechanism. Sometimes just having a town hall where you may discuss a current event that surrounds the issue of race, that way it's a little bit more tangentially removed from the employees. Sometimes you can have a private hotline because one of the issues that sometimes occurs in the workplace is issues of implicit bias. And they don't know when they're acting within their bias and doing harm in a particular situation. And so maybe there's a private hotline where people can just report, hey, this happened, it made me uncomfortable, what have you. And it's a way for the company to keep their fingers on the pulse of what really is going on in the underbelly of the organization so that they know when they may need to act. And then beyond that, I would say being very intentional about creating a more diverse and inclusive work environment. When you have more people in a work environment that come from different backgrounds and what have you, I think it becomes more comfortable for everyone, presumably. How many companies are doing it because they want to as opposed to because they have to? I don't really know, to be honest. I'll put it this way. What you see in business happening right now is companies are moving away from just having to make more money for the shareholder as being their goal, right? Maximizing value for the shareholder. And they're looking more at who are our corporate stakeholders? Because our stakeholders can be just as important as our shareholders, right? Our customers, our suppliers. And why is that? Because social media is alive and well. And if, God forbid, something bad happens, your stakeholders might be jumping up and down about, we need to see something change here, or it could impact the goodwill of the company. Like to think that they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, but quite frankly, they're probably also doing it (laughs) because they want to keep those stakeholders happy. Of course. And how do you measure this over time? A couple of ways. One way is to look at the numbers. This is not about a quota system, but it is about having adequate representation across the board. You need to look at your attrition rates, see what those look like, see what those attrition rates look like across different races, different ethnicities. And if you see a disparity or a problem, you may need to address that. The other thing is, again, that goes back to keeping your finger on the pulse of the underbelly and how people are feeling. Find a way to take stock of how how employees in the company feel about the culture and the work environment. Is this a place where they'd recommend to their friends to seek employment? Do underrepresented employees feel valued and respected and included and heard? Those are some of the things you can do in the short term. And if just picking a random number, 5% of the employees don't think the company is doing a good job, is 5% too much or too little? 
maybe it depends on the industry. 5% is probably within the margin of error. (laughs) So probably not the worst thing. (laughs) Dion, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Dion Lomax, lecturer in markets, public policy, and law at Boston University Questrom School of Business and managing director for antitrust regulations at AMI, Affiliated Monitors Incorporated. John, back to you. Thanks, Craig. And that's part one of our look at racism in business and what DEI programs are doing to combat it. In our next episode, we'll look at how DEI works at a national law firm and at Google. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. The language of business is available wherever you get podcasts or just ask Alexa. We now have downloads in 40 states and 74 countries. We really appreciate the support. Our social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswe Media Group. Consulting producer Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, thanks for listening to The Language of Business. 